Welcome back to Bootability, a weekly interview series about the amazing ability we all have to change our lives and the world if we're brave enough to tap into it. I'm your host, Jihee Jolly. Today marks our 40th episode and one year since we launched Bootability, both the podcast and the publication. To everyone who's been listening, sharing feedback, and most importantly, sharing your own stories of bootability from the last year with us, we can't thank you enough. So to commemorate today's milestone, we're doing a bit of a look back at what we've learned from all of you in the last year about how chanting Nam Myoho Renge Kyo, the central practice of SGI Nichiren Buddhism, has helped you tap into your own bootability. But first, some context. I recently read an article by social psychologist Amy Cuddy and writer Jill Ellen Riley titled, Why This Stage of the Pandemic Makes Us So Anxious, in the Washington Post. In it, they termed blunted emotions, spikes in anxiety and depression, and a desire to drastically change something about our lives as pandemic flux syndrome. To be clear, pandemic flux syndrome is not a clinical term, but they write, it seems to capture something about the moment we're living through. I watched the article circulate around social media alongside countless other pieces from journalists and writers sharing how not okay they were feeling. Last week, for example, journalist Charlie Warzel wrote a piece about witnessing and experiencing anger online, but this was an emotion layered upon countless other emotions that just had never gone away. He wrote, From my vantage, the primary feeling during the early months of the pandemic was a mix of pure anxiety and fear. As the months went on, a dominant feeling of exhaustion layered atop the anxiety and fear. In the midsummer Delta surge, it felt like the new predominant layer was hopelessness, that the pandemic was unending. Lately, I feel the new top layer is acute anger. Reading these types of pieces has been striking to me, because in one sense, they do capture a feeling that many of us are living through. But on the other hand, in my Buddhist community, I'm also hearing so many clear and helpful takes on what to do about such feelings, especially about how to generate hope. So today, let's consider four of the most helpful insights I've heard in interviews in the last year to combat whatever it is you might be feeling right now. Of course, if you're struggling with your mental health, this is by no means medical advice, and we fully support seeking out the professional help you might need that, in fact, can be a great act of wisdom that comes from tapping into our bootability. In the article about pandemic flux syndrome, Cuddy and Riley write that being in a prolonged liminal state can take a collective health toll on us. To explain this, they turn to the work of Wharton Business School professor Katie Milkman about the cost of being denied a clearly delineated fresh start, which can be tough. Milkman says, Clearly demarcated fresh starts give us renewed motivation and help us pursue important goals. But for most of us, that clear fresh start hasn't materialized. This feeling is all too real, and it made me think of a conversation I had with Rory Arnaud, which you can hear on episode 7, Winning Morning, Winning Life. Rory's story is about his battle to start and run a construction company with his family, but in order to be able to do that effectively, he had to first address deeper internal feelings he had been grappling with, including the addictive behaviors he used to manage them. I just like, it was like this fog, you know, this fogginess in my mind. 
in front of me that it wouldn't let me just live the life that I wanted. You know, it was like blocking me. It was really not letting me vision my life. And, and, and when I started chanting, I was like, okay, this is it. This, it made it so clear, you know, this Buddhism made it so clear for me that you need to change this, you know, like you need to change this because this is what's really hindering you. This is what's really stopping you. And, um, I'd actually been drug free for seven years this year. So, wow. you know, and, and even, you know, starting to get serious with starting a company, I was thinking like, how am I going to run this business? I'm only going to sink myself even deeper in my finances. You know, like I'm not going to do well, you know, if I'm, yeah. I'm not, if I'm not thinking straight. So Rory decided to change his daily life by prioritizing chanting Nam Myoho Renge Kyo, the essence of Buddhist practice, first thing in the morning, no matter what, in order to dramatically shift each of his days. And first it started off like I would wake up at six, you know, and, you know, incorporate my practice. And then by 7.30, I was in the office. But then things started like the dynamic of the of the of the company was way too too fast or way too different that I needed to adjust. So I actually needed to wake up earlier in order to meet that dynamic change for my company because I really had to like chant in the morning in order to really like first win over myself and then get motivated to like really take on the day. And you know sometimes they don't some days don't go too well. And at the end of the day, when I come home, I feel okay. You know, I feel satisfied, even though it was a bad day, because I know I did my best. You know, I know that I, I gave it my all, you know, and that started by winning in the morning, mm -hmm. you know, and, and it really sets my tone for the day. Buddhist philosopher Daisaku Ikeda explains that chanting is a way to refresh yourself each day. And in the absence of a collective fresh start, I have found it incredibly helpful as well. Which leads us to our second reminder about self-care. In the article, Cuddy and Riley cite a second reason for pandemic flux as fatigue. They write, For many people, our brains and bodies are simply fatigued, and recalibrating to the new circumstances is too much to bear. In part, that's because many of us have been relying on what psychologists call surge capacity. As psychologist Anne Mastin explained in an interview with science journalist Tara Hale, Surge capacity is a collection of adaptive symptoms, mental and physical, that humans draw on for short-term survival in acutely stressful situations. But such a response can keep us going for only so long. Eventually, we deplete our surge capacity and need a break so that it can recharge. Reading this, I recognize the feeling as all too real, as countless people have been operating in a high-stress mode for an incredibly long time at this point, which reminded me of another conversation I had with Jessica Riley, a young mother and military psychologist, on episode 24 on boundaries and true self-care. Jessica shared her experience of being extremely overworked, which came to a breaking point when she had a child and at the same time received news that her husband would soon be deployed to a war zone. When she heard the news, she collapsed in her office, knowing something had to change. I sort of immediately hit the ground in my office, like just like in despair, like it's just not possible. Like, how am I going to do this? And like the depths of that despair was so great that I knew like I had to lift myself up or else I might never get up. Right. So I was like, you have to get up, Jessica. And actually 
I got up and the first thing that came to my mind was, you know, one of the core Buddhist principles like that we, we learn, which is, um, unshakable happiness and turn poison into medicine. And so actually I keep this posted. I wrote this, like after that moment, I wrote this on a post-it and I stuck it on my computer. And in that moment I determined, I was like, I'm going to be happy. Like, I'm not going to live a miserable life anymore. Because this was just like a diagnosis of more misery, more suffering, more sacrifice. I was like, I've already sacrificed so much. Like, what more do you want from me, you know? And I was like, I have to transform this. And so that really set about like a transformation of me setting boundaries at work, right? Um, And having a small child, like... um, I really had a hard time saying no at work because I was so afraid, like I needed to be valued at work. I needed to have, I needed to be good at what I, like I desperately needed to be like good at what I was doing. And so I was afraid if I said no, that meant that I wouldn't be valued at work. But when I had nobody at home to take care of my child, like Four o'clock came and I was like, I'm gone. Like, bye, I'm leaving because I had to go home. Like another life depended upon me. And so I was barely keeping up with like the basics at work. And they would come to me all the time asking me like, can you take on this extra project? Can you take on this extra project? Can you take on this extra project? Um, but I couldn't, like I, I was barely keeping it together trying to take care of this kid. And so in that way, my son was such a huge benefit to me because I couldn't say no for myself, but I could say no for him. And so I learned to say no and I got comfortable with the word no. And to the point that like over time, it didn't scare me so much to say no. Like it, it, it gets so deep. So I feel like I could talk forever, but, um, but essentially, like the military, because it was such a pressure cooker, it was so intense. It was like so ridiculously intense and demanding that it forced me to get comfortable saying no. Because it was either my life, my quality of life, my, my, my son's precious childhood, which I'm not going to get back. I was either going to give that up or I was going to learn to say no. While everyone's experience of prolonged stress is different, my conversation with Jessica really got me chanting seriously to identify what self-care based on wisdom looks like in my own life right now. Sometimes it's hard to know what the best steps are to take care of yourself, but Jessica's story is a great reminder that chanting honestly about it can help you unlock the wisdom to figure it out, and also the courage to take action to protect your health, even if it's hard. Next, let's consider a really interesting point raised in the article about something called affective forecasting errors. The phrase, coined by Harvard psychologist Dan Gilbert and University of Virginia psychologist Tim Wilson, refers to the human tendency to be reliably inaccurate when predicting the intensity and duration of our emotions after significant possible future life events, such as serious physical injuries, financial windfalls, or, as Cuddy and Riley write, let's say, emerging from a global pandemic. They write, For example, people generally overestimate how distressed they will be after a romantic breakup. 
and when sports fans were asked to predict how they would feel after their team won a major sporting event, they guessed they'd be much happier for much longer than they actually were. In order to deal with the confusing disappointment that this can bring on, Cuddy and Riley turn to another social worker who explains that when people feel emptiness or discomfort, we may try to regain control by changing what we can, our job, relationship, or appearance, because it gives us a sense of control. But the reality is, we can't control our environment, and sometimes what life throws at us is really, really hard. Which brings me to the third reminder I want to share today, from episode 32, Navigating Death and Illness. It was one of the most moving and courageous stories I've ever heard, where Jonathan Turan shares the story of supporting his dad at the end of his life while also completing residency as a doctor in Texas. His life was surrounded by uncertainty at the time. How long his dad had left to live as he awaited a transplant that ultimately never came, and how to support patients and their families making end-of-life decisions at the height of the pandemic. To cope with all of this, Jonathan decided he would just take action, and based on chanting Nam Myoho Renge Kyo and studying Buddhism together with his dad and his community, he shaped his family's experience of the most trying time. This practice really, uh, the training that I've gone through this, and by training I mean kind of supporting different events and uh, you know meeting with different people as they visit um, uh, my city and whatnot, it's like, I really got to be in the forefront and take action for things I want to get done. You know, I can't be in the background waiting for things to be done by other people because um, you'll be waiting forever, you know. And for me, my dad was my, my time with my dad was so limited already and so precious. That I didn't want to wait for it. And I wanted to make as many causes for him as possible. And for that to be enjoyable, I had to be the fun person. I had to be a radiant person to bring other people in as well. Right. Because if it was just a gloom study, uh, no one would want to join us, you know? And then I think for me, more than anything, is I was able to continue because I had so much support from everybody. I remember being so moved at the way Jonathan decided how his experience was going to be, rather than just letting it happen to him. And how, even moving through the grief that came afterwards, he was able to nurture a new dream for the kind of humanistic doctor he would be. There are countless other amazing stories I've heard over the past year on how to refresh yourself when you're feeling stuck, lost, disconnected, burdened, or burnt out, and we'll continue to tell them in the coming months. But for now, I'll leave you with a final thought from one of my favorite early episodes, episode 3, Buddhism Therapy and How People Actually Change, with psychotherapist Sean Grover, on the difference between what relative happiness and absolute happiness in Buddhism are. Relative happiness, which is that dependent form of happiness, really keeps you in a state of dependency. Now, a state of dependency means you can't stand uh, on your own. You have to be attached to something to feel like mm -hmm. solid. So people who, who uh, often take go down that track will often find themselves running out of gas a lot. Because relative, relative happiness you know, runs out. The batteries go dead. Uh, the car gets in an accident, uh, your income, you get you know, laid off, you know, whatever. The, you're constantly, with relative happiness, is constantly shifting and changing. And, and you're sort of a slave to your circumstances. With absolute happiness, you're dealing with a core sense of yourself. And Buddhism really, look, to me, Buddhism, we're looking to create a sustainable happiness in the face of suffering. 
How do we create sustainable happiness in the face of suffering? That sort of sustainable happiness that Sean describes, which includes accepting and processing suffering as it happens, but finding ways to refresh ourselves and move forward anyway, are the core of what SGI Nichiren Buddhists strive for by chanting Nam Myoho Renge Kyo to tap into our Buddhability. So, reminder number four is to ask yourself, which type of happiness are you pursuing? On that note, We'll continue to explore what bootability looks like in many different people's lives in the coming months, and we're always happy to hear from you if you have any questions or topics you'd like to see covered. Just email me at podcast at sgi-usa.org. And as a reminder, we're doing a special giveaway for our one-year anniversary, which is a homemade, limited-edition bootability zine. To enter to win one, just go on Instagram and share your favorite post from bootability from the past year, tagging us anytime before the end of the day today, Monday, October 4th. That's all for today, and we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.